You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. In the world of professional basketball, there's a well-known concept called the disease of more. It was originally coined by Pat Riley, that's the Hall of Fame coach, who led six teams to the NBA championships. But what is the disease of more? As Riley explains, winning a championship requires every player to do the small things, the thankless tasks, diving for a ball, playing hard defense, sacrificing yourself for the good of the team. But after winning a championship, things begin to change. Egos rise up, and players begin to want, well, more. More recognition, more money, more fame, more playing time, more endorsements, more chances to score, more individual glory. In his book, Showtime, here's how Coach Riley explains the idea. He says, success is often the first step toward disaster. People start thinking, I'm really the key ingredient. It was my quality minutes off the bench, or it was my brilliant coaching decisions, or it was my outstanding defense. He goes on to explain that this is the real reason why teams who win championships are often ultimately dethroned. They're not beaten by other better teams. They're beaten by the egos within the team itself. They're beaten by the disease of more. The church in Corinth was suffering from the disease of more, as churches often do even today. Not on the basketball court, but in their community, in the church. You might say they were a successful church, a young, talented community of Christians in a vibrant cosmopolitan city in the Mediterranean region. God had blessed them with an impressive array of gifts and talents. But over time, the Corinthians began to believe, I'm the key ingredient here. It was my gifts, my brilliant decisions, my outstanding abilities. Some assumed that their giftedness made them more spiritual, spiritual. Their impressiveness made them more important to the church. They had begun to show symptoms of the disease of more. So the Apostle Paul responds. And in this section of his letter to the church, he teaches them about spiritual gifts, talents, and abilities in the church, what they are, how they should be exercised, and to what end, what goal. And as he does this, he offers three invitations, three different calls. And the first one is the call to serve. The call to service. What's a spiritual gift anyway? Simply put, it's a God-given ability. It's the way the Holy Spirit uniquely enables you to love people best. The Bible tells us that every person who belongs to Christ is also given a spiritual gift of some kind, the way that you love best. We find a list of these spirit-empowered abilities in verses 8 through 11. Wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, the ability to distinguish between spirits, tongues, the interpretation of tongues, and so on. That's a sample of the spiritual gifts that God gives to his people, probably some of the ones the Corinthians were most focused on. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list of all the ways that God's people are gifted. 
But here's the point that Paul is trying to make. What are these spirit-endowed abilities to be used for? What is their purpose? In verse 5, Paul describes them as varieties of service. And in verse 7, he calls them manifestations of the Spirit for the common good. You see, the Corinthians had begun to view their giftedness as special ways to impress their peers, gain a reputation, flaunt their spirituality. They begin to see them as air with which to inflate their egos. But the apostle tells them, no, no, spiritual gifts are meant for the common good, not personal gain. They were given to you by God for service, not self-promotion. And in the next chapter of 1 Corinthians, as it famously teaches, we're told that the whole point of spiritual gifts is love. See, this passage is offering us more than a theory or even a theology of spiritual gifts. It's actually an invitation to a completely different way of relating to the church, away from seeing ourselves as an audience to be entertained or or a client to be served or a customer to be satisfied This, rather, is an invitation to use those gifts for the common good of the church. This is a call to serve. So what are your gifts? And how can you serve the common good? Remember, we're just talking about ways you love people effectively. Ways that you are spiritually empowered to contribute to the spiritual growth, care, and flourishing of others, the people around you in the community of faith. Some of you are really good at listening to hurting people with a lot of empathy. I've experienced that from you. Others of you have a a fantastic sense of humor that doesn't just draw attention to yourself. It actually disarms people and draws them into the family of faith. Some of you are really great at offering a timely word of encouragement, a, a verbal gift. People just walk away from you feeling comforted and strengthened. Some of you are really gifted at project management. Did you know that too can be a spiritual gift? You're you're able to organize tasks, delegate them, assign deadlines. Why? So that the body of Christ can be more fruitful, more effective. Some of you have a certain skill like making delectable baked goods or singing or home improvement and handyman skills, skills that you can use to bless others and even point them to Christ. Uh, Friends, will you take some time, maybe even today, to consider how you can bring those gifts into the community for the purpose of serving others? Some of you may feel stunted by self-doubt. I don't really know if I have anything to offer. Listen, if you're in Christ, you do. God has gifted you. You may need to develop your gifts, try them out, put them into practice, use them on a regular basis, maybe dust them off because they haven't been used in a while. You may need to learn to see this as a matter of stewardship. No one has every gift, but the ones you have, you must use. God has entrusted them to you. He's entrusted you with these abilities. You've been given a loaf of bread in the middle of a famine. You have a gift to steward. Here is a call to serve. But second, we also find in this passage a call to interdependency. 
Remember, the, the Corinthians had fallen into a trap that you might call talent exceptionalism. They had begun to believe that certain gifts were superior to others, believing that some gifts, and therefore the people who had those gifts, were exceptional, more important than those others. I wonder what gifts, what kind of people, that a church in D.C. might be most tempted to exalt as superior, better than the rest. Maybe it's the gift of knowledge. Maybe it's extroverted forms of leadership. Maybe it's people with an inclination towards public service or activism. Uh, Really, what are the gifts that are most easily exalted? What are the gifts that are most easily forgotten or dismissed in Washington, D.C.? Paul addresses this talent exceptionalism, this problematic view of spiritual gifts, in a few ways. The first thing he remind, that he does is that he reminds the Corinthians and us that all the gifts of the Spirit have the one same source, right from the start. In verse 4 through 6, here's what he says. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but what? The same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but what? The same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers just a few of them, just the exceptional gifts. No, no, no. He empowers them all in everyone. Seven times. The apostle uses the word same in this first paragraph alone. Same spirit, same Lord, same God to remind us that all the gifts have the same source drawn from the same well, and therefore, they're all the same in importance and value in the church. In other words, stop thinking some gifts are inherently superior to others. The second way Paul challenges the Corinthians' talent exceptionalism is by telling them this. God has given his church not just one kind of gift, not even a lot of expressions of that one gift, but many kinds of gifts, a diversity of gifts. And if your church makes room for only one kind of gift and one kind of person who has that gift, the ones you think are impressive, the ones that are rewarded by the world, if that's all you're doing, well, then you cannot be a healthy church. Notice how Paul makes thorough use of the metaphor of the human body. He he says in verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but many And in verses 17 and 18, he says this, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many, many parts. So if your whole body were a a nose and nothing else, you wouldn't be a healthy body. If your body were made of five arms or five years, I know it's a weird image, you wouldn't be a well-functioning body. No matter how strong or dazzling those arms and ears might be. Friends, consider other gifts in our midst that we're neglecting or forgetting or sidelining. Or put another way, Are there people to whom we have been communicating, even implicitly, I have no need for you, as it says in verse 21? You know, limbs or organs that we've effectively been amputating from Christ's body. 
other ways maybe that you have been led to feel unwanted or unneeded. Where you've been saying to yourself, as it says in verse 15, because I'm not a hand or an eye, I don't belong to the body. And if so, if that's what your experience has been, I want to say, I'm sorry. We're sorry. It should not be so according to God's word. And Paul tells us these amputations most commonly occur in regards to gifts and people who are considered by our society, our culture, to be less important. As verse 22 puts it, the the parts of the body that seem to be weaker and less honorable and unpresentable. Notice, he's talking about parts of the body that aren't actually less valuable or weaker in God's eyes, but rather those that just seem to be according to the standards of the world. So who fits that description in our church? Is it the elderly? Is it our gifted women? The disabled? Is it the contributions of those of lower income and education, perhaps? In verse 13, Paul invites the Corinthians to consider the diversity of Christ's church, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and who it is that they and and we might be excluding. As one commentator put it very powerfully, it is an affront to Christ if a self-effacing or vulnerable Christian is made to feel second class or alienated, perhaps because he or she does not have what others see as the right gifts. Remember, the point is here that if we only privilege a few exceptional gifts, and we sideline all the rest, we cannot be a healthy and whole church. Theologian Jürgen Moltmann once said, congregations without disabled persons being accepted is a disabled church. We need all God's gifts and all God's people. We need you in order to be well-functioning and spiritually alive. Hand, we need you. I, we need you. Pinky, um, do you know that if we didn't have our pinky fingers, we would lose 50% of our hand strength? Pinky, we need you. We need each other. Here is a call to interdependency. The call to service, the call to interdependency, and finally, the call to honor. Paul says one more important thing about the members of Christ's body who seem to be weaker, whom we think are more expendable. We must not only accept them, accept their gifts, we must also honor them. Look at verse 23. On those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And the second half of verse 24, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Because the world doesn't ordinarily give it. Wow. I mean, think about this. The church is called to go out of its way to give greater honor to the members that the world most commonly overlooks, whether the elderly, gifts of women, or maybe racial minorities, 
or those of lower income or education. These are the ones that we need to honor and celebrate and publicly declare, we need you. The body of Christ is called to make up for what is lacking, what is missing in the world's treatment of these forgotten ones. Verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care from one another, the same honor from one another. And chiefly, whose responsibility is this countercultural bestowal of honor in the life of the church? According to verse 24, it's the most presentable parts. The the ones that do not require greater honor, that have no need for special treatment in the church because the world already recognizes and honors them. So when certain brothers and sisters suffer from being forgotten and devalued, we all feel it, verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And then when they're honored, we all even those who in that moment are giving up their honor, giving up the spotlight, giving up recognition and reward, we all rejoice together because we belong to one another. So who do we need to specially honor in our midst? Who have we been failing to honor? And friends, it's important to notice too, this isn't just an act of pity. This isn't just... A, a, a gesture of of sort of patronizing kindness. This is a special honor that isn't just a participation trophy. To the contrary, Paul says clearly in verse 22, we do this because the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are in fact indispensable. Did you see that word there? Indispensable. We honor them because they, by God's spirit, are honorable. We honor them because they are crucial to the vitality and flourishing of the church. We've just failed to see it. We have failed to see their glory. Some of you, we have failed to see your glory. But the Spirit of God gives us eyes to see them. When we begin to see another, one who long ago seemed to be weak in the eyes of the world, born in a lowly manger to an impoverished family, uh, raised in sort of backwater forgettability in the Roman Empire, Uh, one who seemed weak even in his public ministry, no special training, nothing that seemed to commend him to the religious leaders of his day, One who laid down his life. Surely one who was called to save the world must come in power and impressive glory. But here's one who found his throne on the cross of Calvary. One who seemed so dishonorable, laying there, spread out, dying, naked, dishonorable. Uh, One who seemed hung on the cross, so unpresentable. This is Jesus who suffered with us and for us. This is Jesus because of his death and his resurrection. 
the one who brought his power through his weakness, who brought life through his death, the one who now rejoices over us, having suffered for us. See, when we finally see the true glory of Christ, to see the power of God in weakness, then we will see the true glory of his body in every part of his body, strong and weak, impressive and unimpressive, presentable and unpresentable. And we will seek to honor every part, even as we have learned to honor Christ, the weak one, the forgotten one. And we will see ourselves as dependent on others. And it will become our delight to serve that body with the many gifts that we've been giving. The call to serve. The call to interdependence. The call to honor. Friends, today, consider Christ and consider the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.